the incomparable. Number 365, August 2017. Welcome back, everybody, to The Incomparable. I'm your host, Jason Snell. This is part two of our TV show Hall of Fame draft in our previous episode. You heard my guests, Glenn Fleischman, David J. Lohr, Moises Chuyan, Andy Yanaiko, Erica Ensign, John Syracusa, Dr. Drang, Dan Morin, and Monty Ashley, as well as myself. Each of us picked a show that we believe deserves to be enshrined in the Incomparables Television Hall of Fame. So that's round one. We picked 10 shows. If you missed it, listen to episode 364. We picked Barney Miller, Your Show of Shows, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, Columbo, Doctor Who, The Sopranos, Late Night with David Letterman, The Wire, The Simpsons, and Star Trek. And in the truest spirit of a fantasy sports draft, I decided with 10 people picking, the only fair thing to do would be to reverse matters for the second round in what's (laughs) called a snake draft. And what does that mean? Yes, that's right. Your host, who always goes last because he's so deferential to his guests, gets to pick first. And now his logic is revealed. And you sniped yourself. (laughs) Oh, I wonder what it could be. I see how this worked. Dan, I feel like I'm going to lay down stakes in this round. How about that, Dan? (laughs) (laughs) I don't don't get it. <laughs> and with that, Jason, you have truly become the big bad. You could afford to do this because you knew that I you're going to be. Picks. That's why. You, that's why you chose. That's why you chose Snake because you knew that if I don't pick in the first round, someone's going to take it just for, just to add some color and drama to the Survivor Island sort of thing that we're doing here. With I actually felt that when, especially when we were going to have fourteen people on, that it was probably uh, unfair to to do the uh, regular kind of draft. But with the first pick of the second round, I am going to pick to form, according to John Syracuse, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, which, as I say over and over again, is my favorite TV show of all time. Yeah, other than the fact that that Star Trek is burned in my brain, so it's like the air I breathe. But yes, Buffy, one of my favorite shows of all time, probably, if not number one, then right behind Star Trek and maybe Doctor Who. And uh, and yeah, we'll put David Letterman in there too. It's They're all in the Hall of Fame now. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. They're all in the Hall of Fame. I love Buffy. I, I grew up loving comic book superheroes and uh, Spider-Man in particular. And one of the things that I love about Buffy is it is following that formula. It's got the horror tropes in there, uh, but it is about a young person who has lots of problems in their personal life, but has been given great power and needs to exercise it and uh, and and come to grips with the fact that they have a great responsibility. And then you, you layer in something that I actually learned to love from Star Trek, which is using genre metaphors to address things in the real world in the case of Buffy it's all about growing up and the horrors of high school and they man and college eventually and uh and all of those horrors manifest as real horrors in the life of the characters so um couldn't love that show anymore and uh so how I I had to pick it so Buffy the vampire slayer goes in the hall of fame right down the right down the hall from Star Trek I just won another bet. It was really <laughs> obvious, wasn't it? There were no takers on that bet. <laughs> I know. But, Actually, uh, in fact, Star Trek, I picked, I had a higher on my list primarily because I was more concerned about someone else on the panel picking it, um, mm. David, but that didn't happen. So, <laughs> well, the snake continues to snake upward. Number 12, uh, or the next pick, would, yeah, number 12. Jason, do you know how snakes work? 
<laughs> they're snaking, Dan. They're snaking. Snake, snake. Do you know how snakes work? The, the snake eats itself. Upwards? Oh, we are snakes and ladders, and somebody can fall down to another spot. Snakes aren't rope, Jason. Just remember that. Okay, if you say so. Whatever. Monty, <laughs> what's, that. what's your choice? Can't prove that. Well, speaking of shows that are like the air you breathe, there are not many television shows where I have the entire scripts in book form. That's not actually true. I've got like five. But <laughs> in the grand scheme of tel- all of television history, that's a very small percentage. Yeah. That, that was the Montiest thing yeah. that has been said so far. I won that bet. But I'm not sure why I have this one, because I'm pretty close to having memorized the entire run of Monty Python's yeah. Flying Circus. Yeah. yeah. It was literally the Montiest thing. It has your name in it, even. Glenn, I think it's more accurate to say that Monty's name is from it. I'll get to that. Yeah, okay. <laughs> oh, my God. I used to sneak out of bed at midnight to go downstairs and watch Monty Python and my local PBS affiliate. Uh, I quoted it to my friends. They quoted it back to me. Every line in every episode served as a secret password that said, you're one of the right kind of people. When I logged on to my first BBS at 300 baud in 1984 and had to pick an online handle, I went with Monty Python. And that stuck so hard, it eventually became my actual name. What? I named myself (laughs) after Monty Python's Flying Circus. Eventually. This is some origin story yeah. stuff going down right now. I did not know this. It's because of the What Keans. I did in Grenada, I can never speak of again. Wait, did Jason love Jason and the Argonauts that much? <laughs> well, I'll just put it this way. When I met Monty in college, he was mid-transition where Monty was in quotes between his given first and last names. And then he evolved from there. Paul Monty Ashley. I was about to say, like Mr. Mixie's Pitalik, if we say his actual name, he's <laughs> banished from this plane of existence. Don't don't dead name Monty. He's Monty now. I cannot make this clear enough. Monty is my actual name. Yep. Just because I picked it instead of my parents picking it does not matter. Nope. I always assumed it was short for Montague, which really gave you some like stature in my eyes. <laughs> it's short for whatever I feel like it being short for. Although that's cool. That's on the cool. paperwork, it just says Monty. Right on. I love the entire series. Season four is not as good as the others. But I would happily defend individual episodes and scenes. I'm not going to do that right now, because as with any true Monty Python fan, if I go into details, we'll be here forever. Even longer than already. Yeah. yeah. Gee, Monty, keep describing heaven to me. <laughs> <laughs> well, you realize season four, although John Cleese wasn't acting, he did do some of the writing. And I really liked the Michael Ellis episode. And, you know, what? Michael Ellis episode, uh, a lot of that was from the Holy Grail script that they didn't end up using and so forth. <laughs> look, 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 these great. are all facts. They're all facts. You can read about them. Uh, this was my first introduction to what was called British humor with a U in it. It was the first show I saw that managed to be very dumb about very smart subjects, which is a style of comedy I still really, really like. <laughs> like They would do the dumbest jokes that you still had to have done some reading to understand. Uh-huh. I think it's a really good television show. It's obviously incredibly influential, just like I said about The Simpsons. You go out on the internet, you could have a pretty solid conversation with just Monty Python quotes. <laughs> yeah. I actually thought there was the even the, the opposite of that. I thought what I always loved about that is that 
any silly though this is the silliest idea they will go for it but then it's, as soon as they have that idea it's like now we have to be really really smart about how we execute this here here is an idea that's it's brilliantly funny if we do it for 11 seconds and then out and there are ideas that will last three minutes four minutes five minutes it will always justify the attention they give it it's not like we're just going to make stuff up we're just gonna if, if we're gonna have a joke about somebody being going on and on and on being hit in the head with a with a with a raw chicken it's not going to be an episode about and now now let's show the backstory about the chicken let's show is there a wacky thing about that chicken it's like no no no. you have eight seconds to have a man in a suit of armor walk into shot hit the man with a with a with a raw chicken and then you go to the next thing that's i always really appreciate that that you can do it's it's a lesson that you can do anything but there are always ways to do it right and ways to do it wrong there's so much discipline to the insanity of monty python like we said about david letterman and your show of shows everything changed after monty python like this is what sketch shows are like now oh you had punchlines in all your sketches that's dumb (laughs) <laughs> yeah the the ability to just walk away from a bit is one of the things i always loved about it especially growing up on saturday night live because i didn't see monty python's flying circus until after i was watching saturday night live and i had that immediate thought of like oh yeah so you just end the bit when you're done and you don't try to explain it or close it off in some way you're just on moving on i love it it's a great show love it i i've indoctrinated the kids early and to this day <laughs> Because of the the whole bit about uh, Bolton being a palindrome. No, it's not a palindrome. I mean, not lob. The the twelve year old still will turn anything backwards just to see what it sounds like. Yeah, yeah. It, it has become a kind of geek lingua franca where I found oh, yeah. myself today oh, yeah. at a convention hosting a panel that a couple of British uh, comics artists were on, and w- the three of us just started doing a four Yorkshireman sketch, just <laughs> yes. ah, like yeah. right into it. Ah, luxury. Ah, drawing luxury. In pencil. When I was a boy, drew with fingernail. <laughs> Monty Python is one of those shows where I've got I've got that mental shot clock that says, "Okay, realize that we, I'm saying the, the shot clock to 18 seconds. After 18 seconds, you are not allowed to continue to use Monty Python's lines <laughs> until you see an active interest in the other person and you continuing Very to continue good. to give lines of that. It's like, oh, I commend you. I, I, did, I, I wanted I did I didn't like being hit in the face to get me to shut up as often as I was having been to. <laughs> and it's like the way you, the way your show of shows is that wellspring for American comedy. You know, you have the Goon Show, which was not a TV show, so it doesn't go in the Hall of Fame, but it was a radio show with Peter Sellers and all. That was what inspired the Pythons, and then from the Pythons, you have Eddie Izzard and the Young Ones and and Rowan Atkinson and all that stuff. And but it's so and formative. Every sketch, like every non-live oh, sketch yeah. show ever yeah, afterward, yeah. yeah, basically. Oh, speaking of Four Yorkshiremen and Eddie Izzard, I just want to briefly say that the Four Yorkshiremen sketch is really good. Yes. It actually predates Monty Python. Yep. Mm-hmm. And Monty Python did their version, but there's a version after Monty Python that Eddie Izzard is in, yeah. which where is great. The, they're just riffing on the sketch and not doing any of the actual lines, <laughs> and it's That's amazing. It's like jazz, where everybody yeah. knows the structure, so you don't have to do any of the actual notes. Yeah, it's it's become a thing like that. That it is a performance art unto itself. Then there's the amazing thing when Michael Palin and John Cleese appear on Saturday Night Live, and they do the parrot sketch on some anniversary, and they. Appear to not know any of the lines the audience clearly knows the lines better than they do and that was a- <laughs> there's there's a great uh, secret policeman's ball where uh palin yep, and cleese yep. start the show <laughs> and he goes i would like to make a return he goes all right hands him his money walks off 
And and that's the end of the sketch. And the audience is like, you can't, what? You can't say that Thatcher hasn't improved some things. Right, right. And the amazing thing about Monty Python is these are all funny guys. But it's there's something about that alchemy of putting them all in the same room. Because in, in Bits and Pieces, they did two shows in the late 60s. Um, the It's the 1948 show and Do Not Adjust Your Set. And there are funny things in each of them, but yeah. it's just not quite there. But then you take half of each writing staff and smash them together and you have Monty Python, which endures. And it's a miracle that it does endure. Yeah. Because it was recorded at the same time that they were throwing away all those Doctor Who lost episodes. Right. Like somebody had to really try to save those. Can, well, can I, I actually I actually have an origin story of how Monty Python was saved. And it Ooh, was I'd love to hear it. It, mm-hmm. it was mm-hmm. thanks to it was thanks to a programmer for the the public broadcasting station in Dallas, uh, a gentleman by by the last name of Wilson. Uh, he had three sons, Owen, Luke and the other one, uh, Andrew, <laughs> Andrew, uh, Andrew Wilson. <laughs> But his friends call him other. It's it's a very Texas joke is Luke Owen. Oh, yeah, the other guy. Uh, this guy licensed Monty Python's Flying Circus for U.S. Uh, television broadcast, and it spread to other public broadcast stations after that. And that is why the tapes got duplicated and sent over here. They were always a really great team, not just creatively, but also as a business team. And so they were having regular business meetings. And when they presented with the opportunity to buy their master tapes and buy the rights to all of their recordings back from the BBC, the BBC had no idea that was going to be valuable. They didn't care. I think they, they paid some very, very low six-figure sum for them. And at that point no they own their own master tapes they can create their own vhs they can they can they it's not going to be destroyed after that right and for, for people who who obviously were arguing a lot amongst themselves when it came time to secure their financial future they came they would always come together and figure out how to make sure that graham chapman's drinking problem and debts could not sink the entire enterprise all right monty python's flying circus is in the hall of fame we move on dan morin your choice hey i'm back up hey welcome back dan (laughs) hey it's good to be here thanks for having me um i'm going to pick a show that I really like, I'm going to go with more of the favorites this time. I do think this belongs in the Hall of Fame, but I realize that it also has a a bit of a legacy that comes after it because this creator went on to make several other shows, many of which were derided for being essentially copying stuff from his earlier shows. But I'm going to go with his first show, which I really love, and that is Aaron Sorkin's Sports Night, Uh, which is a fantastic sitcom, comedy, dramedy, uh, whatever you want to call it. It's the first season of that show with the exception of the truly abysmal laugh track that they try to get rid of over the course of the season, which is yeah. kind of like a weird meta story going on almost. Um, but that first season is is there are almost perfect for me. Just the whole thing, particularly the rapport between uh, Dan, played by Josh Charles, and Casey, played by Peter Krause, are, are just... It's delightful, and the dialogue in that show is really just so tight and snappy. Uh, and yeah, Sorkin cribs from himself kind of incessantly, but like if you're taking this away, you know, <laughs> outside of that, uh, I feel like there's so much here that is delightful. If for no other reason than every single time that I get jammed up on writing a story, I have to call back to the fact that there is an episode about a character named Dan who gets writer's block. And it is one of the best episodes uh, in my mind. And I always think to myself, I'm in the tall grass. I'm in the weeds. Uh, yep. And I have to like yeah. go and look that up and watch that episode just so I can, I can 
revel in feeling like i'm not alone in this also <laughs> there's a scene i will never not be convinced that the scene where uh uh um natalie played by sabrina yes. blows the air horn in his face and then throws the water in josh charles's face was not improv because peter krause looks like he's laughing way too hard <laughs> uh it's just it's so genuine looking yeah there's no way they expected that water oh no that yeah. was so it's so good it makes me laugh every time uh felicity huffman um robert guillaume who is just fantastic in that show plus you know he has a stroke in <laughs> during the first season <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and it's one of the most touching episodes of a tv show ever eli's coming uh oh, and it just has yeah. that like oh i get chills just thinking about that and then episode. when he comes back and he comes back oh. at the end of the first season it's so good hey lady you're gonna put my show on anytime soon <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's just a uh, fantastic great set, uh, cast of supporting characters brenda strong's in there Terry Polo's in there. Um, you know, and, and Smith. Will, yeah, yep. William H. Macy shows up in the second season in a really bizarre role, but he's William H. Macy. You kind of let him do whatever he wants. Clark Gregg, uh, Marvel's Phil Coulson. Yeah, Clark Gregg. Yeah, that's right. Paula As the Marshall. mysterious benefactor. Um, yeah, it's just a, a whole bunch of great actors, so some of whom went on to later roles in Aaron Sorkin series. Janelle Maloney shows up at one point, um, yeah. who then goes on to be in the West Wing. Um, Josh Molina as Jeremy. I mean, he that that the other the other scene that will stick in my mind forever, and I think it was his Twitter avatar for a long time, is the eggnog scene mm-hmm. where he's drinking eggnog <laughs> and he's his girlfriend comes back and is talking at him. He's nodding and he's nodding and she's finally like, Jeremy, swallow the eggnog. He's t- <laughs> I just can't. And it's just one of the best spit takes I've ever seen. Um, I, I adore this show and it's because I love dialogue so much and because it, it is a show that does feel for the most part like I, I, a lot of people talk about shows where the characters, you know, you take a step back and feel like, my God, these characters are all unlikable people. And it's not that these characters in Sports Night weren't without flaws, but I felt like for the most part, they were good people and they really liked each other and that shone through and that's what makes so many successful workplace comedies really is that even if the characters are kind of apparently sniping at people at each other that they really at the end of the day they really love each other and care about each other and you can you can root for them yeah absolutely some of aaron sorkin's other shows well and given aaron sorkin was literally writing plots based on things that were happening to the cast like salary disputes and other things that literally happened to them i think it provides some more of that empathy because they're actually going through the experiences in a slightly different form that he wrote about yeah yeah Yeah. Yeah, i mean it's it's everyone talks about the west wing and the west wing is fine it's a it's a very fine show at least for the first two seasons and some some like beyond <laughs> that but i will say the first two seasons but sports night it to me that it's just more crisply written the characters are just a little bit sharper i i still you know we quote sports night all the time you talk about having conversations in simpsons quotes we do conversations in sports night quotes i swear there's a fly in the studio Dana, your plan is ridiculous. You know, all of these things. I told many, many people. I told many. <laughs> the only person I told was Natalie. Well, the only person I told was Jeremy. I told many, many people. <laughs> oh, so good. I didn't watch Sports Night right away because it was called Sports Night. And I, at the yes. time, especially, I hated sports. And I don't remember how oh, I ended up how falling. How the worm is in- turned, Erica. <laughs> yeah. But the show, it's it's so not about sports. I think now that I have become a sports fan, you know, in my middle age, I enjoy the show even more because the the, the things that they are talking about in like in the cracks in between all the interpersonal relationships make more sense to me than they did before. But but yeah, I, 
I, I was, I'm very glad that I overcame my, my prejudice against <laughs> sports related things and, and, and tried watching that show because it just, it really, really hit me just right. And that is a show that I have rewatched, which I don't usually do with television shows. All right. Sports night. It goes in the hall. It's in there. First ballot hall of, uh, second ballot, second round <laughs> hall of fame or something like that. Sports metaphors work with sports night. Uh, Dr. Drang, it's time for your second choice. What is it? Well, with Monty Python off the board, uh-huh. Uh, I am going to go with something that I don't think anybody's going to go with, but I, I'm going to go with the Mary Tyler Moore show. I right. drained again. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. This was, uh, you know, clearly owed its uh, its origin to the Dick Van Dyke show, uh, not just because of Mary, but because of the whole the home family and the office family, which I think I I don't know if anybody before Dick Van Dyke did that, but. Yeah, but Mary good, did it and and did it in a way that was kind of subversive in a way in that um, she did not have a traditional home life. She was not married. She did not have kids. Her home life was Rhoda and Phyllis. And, and the work life was sort of pushed a little bit to the foreground because of that. And the work people came home with her and things like that. Um you know, the time in which it was made, it's a, it's a very, probably don't see it as a feminist show now, but it definitely was. Um, and it is, it was, it's just so perfectly written that, you know, this whole home life family, home, uh, the work family and the home family thing gives writers Great freedom to have subplots in a half hour show, to move characters back and forth. And this show did it so well. I mean, it, obviously, it has potentially the best sitcom show ever written, which is the, Ch- the Death of Chuckles uh, show. Chuckles Bites the Dust. Yeah. Uh, now, yeah. my wife would argue that that girl was in ahead of Mary. And, you know, I, 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 can, I can see that, except, you know, Anne-Marie had a steady boyfriend, Don, yep. and she had her overbearing uh, father. And, you know, so she had kind of more of a family than Mary did. Mary didn't really have a family. And by the end of the end of the series, um, there's there's sort of an emotional tug to the show that Mary Mary talks about having been on many dates over her life and it's just never really worked out and you could see that you could you could say that that's maybe a cop out or 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 uh, you know sort of uh, reactionary and undercutting the feminist theme of the show but I don't think it is I don't think it does. I, I, I agree think with it, you I, think I don't think it is at all I I, I totally agree I think it's very right. honest Absolutely I think it's very honest, and and it put uh, it puts an emotional core to the show, even back to the previous shows. That uh, it, it's it's just a brilliantly written show. The uh, the fact that my daughter is living in Minneapolis and we visit the, we visit the Mary Tyler Moore statue <laughs> has some effect on my choice here. But it was a show that I always watched. It was in that killer uh, Saturday night uh, CBS lineup. Oh, yeah. It's just it's just one of the best shows ever written. No offense to Marlo Thomas or that girl, but I, I completely agree that the 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 thing about the Mary Tyler Moore show that differentiated it was that by the end of the show, as as you were uh, I, as you were saying, and and I was agreeing with I, I feel like she ended up being married to the job in a way 
that women weren't on TV shows. And that was that was a big distinguishing factor was so many men were married to their jobs on TV. And and that was really in terms of the overall arc of the show, something that very clearly set it apart from that girl. Where, yes, that girl yes. is pioneering, very important, and is on that Pioneers of Television miniseries, and there are clips of it, and it is important. It's a big deal. But when it comes to the public consciousness and and the actual end net effect of the whole series, that's why everybody's still talking about Mary Tyler Moore, and it's still running on cable syndicated networks, and that girl, I think, might be available on DVD. Well, that that girl, she was also very flustered and klutzy, and, and still a girl, and she kept getting saved by. Oh, gee, I can't do Dawn, work good, and, you know. Uh, but now it's it's funny that the the closest Mary ever came to having a steady boyfriend on the show was like two episodes or three episodes, played by Ted Bissell, who played Don on that <laughs> yes. girl. Go figure. But there is a terrific book called Mary and Lou and Rhoda and Ted by Jennifer Armstrong. It's one of the best making of a tv series books i've ever read and it's it's fascinating because it talks about the writing staff and the makeup of the writing staff and how uh it was one of the first shows that had so many women writing for it and and actually being able to take their experiences and put them on screen for the first time in some cases and it's it's just a yeah it's one of the one of the formative shows from my childhood too well, what's wonderful about, I mean, it hit its time. It was very much of its time. And yet you can watch it now. It's yes. still, it's still yes. good. It doesn't, it is not more so than say all in the family, which was definitely of its time and does not age as well, has not aged as well. I think Mary has aged quite well. Yeah. My, my kids love watching Mary and Bob and, and all of the MTM brand shows that you can find on TV now. They all still work. And they had a great ending show. All right. Mary Tyler Moore show. It's inducted in the Hall of Fame. Quite right, too. Now we're back to John Syracuse, who is gloating that he's predicted our behavior. But what will his behavior be with his second pick? I wonder. I'm going to veer off a little bit here because I think with the number ones, my inclination at least was to pick my favorite show, which is what I thought everyone else would do. Some people did, some people <laughs> didn't. But for, for my number two, I'm picking a show that I 100% believe belongs in the Hall of Fame, but it's, it's not my second favorite show of all time so just to make that clear but this show i i'm fairly convinced now even though the show is still airing belongs in the hall of fame and that is the leftovers a show that i started off saying wow. kind of middle of the road things about with some weird opinions and over the course of its uh, three seasons the third one will be the last it's airing right now i have come around pretty strongly to the idea that this is a show that belongs in the television hall of fame now it's a little bit weird it's kind of like empire strikes back in that this is a show that can exist, as strange as it might seem. I think it can exist, or it should at least it shouldn't exist in the Hall of Fame without its much more famous predecessor, created by the same person, Damon Lindelof, uh, which is Lost, which may have been on, on one of our lists if we actually got to like third and fourth or fifth picks, I think. Yeah, a lot of people it, on the show it's on my Lost, list, right? yeah. Right, but The Leftovers, Leftovers does not exist without Lost. There's no continuity with the show. Like, it's not even the same topic, arguably not really even the same genre. But this show is like... It's like a catharsis for the creator. It's all about a mystery whose solution is not forthcoming. And that is the central conflict of the episode. That every, literally every person on the earth is confronted with a mystery whose solution is not forthcoming. And it just, and, and this show is about 
how they deal with it and how it destroys them and how it changes things. And it is super weird and it will not do what you predict. And even within like an individual episode, you can see, oh, this is this type of episode. Like you can see the the bones of television in it, but the particulars like the, you know, in the Mad Libs of tel- how to write a good television series and good television show, what they filled in the blanks with is bananas. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. Yep, se- season two yeah. of this show, I think, and se- like season two of the show is like the show itself. Season one, you watch it and like, what in the hell was that? But season two comes and like, it gets crazier and it gets better. Season three so far has not as good as season two, but it makes a nice little arc. It makes like starts off you you're really confused and and but by the end of it you're like that's something season two comes along it's the peak of the show and then season three we're sliding downward slowly so this is a short show with a short run on pay cable television that most people haven't watched by someone who made a much more famous other show but i firmly believe this show belongs in the hall of fame just because the things it does i've never seen a television show do and i i am entranced by it i haven't i've only seen the first season and although I'm going to watch more, but I wanted to just put in a plug. There is, a, it's I believe episode six of the first season is called Guest, and um, although I don't, I I don't have the kind of um, warm feelings that John has for this show. I I think it's an interesting show. I'm not quite sure what I think of it. I need to watch more. So you of haven't it. watched season two yet? Yeah, exactly right. <laughs> but I will say this: Guest is one of the best hours of television i've seen in the last decade at least maybe longer just an amazing episode and that alone has earned this show my interest because that episode was so amazingly good so yeah it's a weird it's a weird show and you're right john it is kind of about damon lindelof wanting to do a show where the mystery is unsolvable and he says up front we will never get an answer because he was tired of getting all the questions about Lost. So he's like, no, no, there was no answer forthcoming. And, and, and the fact that they, the fact that there is a mystery that people aren't going to get to the answer to destroys yes, them. Right. It destroys the planet, right? And it's like, it is kind of an overwrought catharsis of his own creative experience with Lost, right? So in, in many ways, like like all great writing is entirely sort of selfish and inward looking and like the, the inner world of, of the writer put on the screen and given, given much more scope. But I love that about it too. All right, Erica, your choice. I, I, this one I'm more curious about, so I'm interested to see what you do. <laughs> uh, I think I'm going to surprise everybody, myself included. It's a Caillou. Uh, because, it's what? a Caillou. <laughs> it's not freaking Caillou. Did you self-hypnotize yourself? <laughs> I'm shaking with rage. Is it uh, hockey night in Canada? <laughs> do hockey night in Canada. <laughs> yes, I, I am only picking properties show? that Sydney that Sydney Newman was uh, related to. Actually, I like Red Green, that's, but it that's, I like that show too. That is that would be a credible pick. <laughs> no, I am. I'm. I definitely picked my first or my very favorite show for the first round. That was that was obvious. Um, and and I think I'm going to do the same thing that John was talking about is, is going more for a show that I feel like deserves to be in the Hall of Fame for my second round. So I'm actually going to pick a show that I don't like at all. Um, what? That I, I kind of <laughs> that I can't stand. Whoa, mine's <laughs> blown. And 
<laughs> and pretty much have have not watched very much <sighs> of at all uh, because I don't like it. Wow. However, I feel like it's wow. really, really important to the foundation of television. So I'm going to pick I Love Lucy because huh. well, I like while I can't stand Lucille Ball's brand of comedy, she's really, <laughs> really good at what she did. And that show was just foundational for for sitcoms uh, forever and ever and ever. Amen. I mean, it invented the, the three camera technique, which I mean, actually, Doctor Who used that. So Doctor Who would not be the show that it is without I Love Lucy. Without I Love Lucy, you would have no Star Trek. That's yeah, true. That's exactly. Right. That's because Daddy Loose Studios. Mm-hmm. So I mean, it, <laughs> or Mission Impossible. It, it, it really led to an awful lot of things that I did love very, very much, um, and I also appreciate that that it was it was Lucy and Desi together who who made this show. But Lucy was. <laughs> the title character and very much the focus and and i think it's it's wonderful that you had a a woman being the the lead character and pioneering a television show so so early if it wasn't for her i feel like the television landscape would have been even more dude heavy than it it was uh in the end so so i'm not a fan so i can't really say a whole lot of about the the show or like come up with favorite memories because my favorite memories are of not watching i love lucy but uh but yeah i feel like it deserves to be in the Hall of Fame. It's important, you guys. This is so Canadian of you. You've, you've adapted well. You're you're donating your choice to a good cause. I, not I in am. your own self. Oh my gosh. Mm-hmm. You're so. Yeah, good. I've, I've always I've uh, heard other people say that uh, it was a terribly sexist show because she was uh, Lucy's character was always downtrodden and Ricky was trying to keep her in, in, as a housewife in her place. <laughs> as a, even as a as a kid, I always thought that it was a really positive role because. All the other sitcoms I'd seen, I was seeing in like as a kid, like in the late seventies and early eighties, they would not let the women be funny. The the, mm-hmm. the woman was like, "Now, Josh, now I'm going to give you this five hundred dollars to go put in the bank. You're not going to go gambling at the horse track, are you? Ah, oh, come on, honey, I wouldn't do that to you, mm-hmm. was I? You yep. know, this is but this is the one where yes, she was always a, a fool. Yes, she was always trying to has a scheme in mind, but. Ricky was the boring one to say, now, Lucy, you know, you don't know. You can't sing. You can't dance. You can't be in the show. It was like, give I her the spotlight. I would never have guessed that the Ricky Ricardo voice would come from Andy and not Moises here. I, <laughs> I never have I guessed was, that. You, I you have no idea how much that. I vehemently hate doing that voice. Yeah, I, actually, I think I actually yeah. do. I think we yeah. talked I'm, about I'm him before. I'm more likely to break out into Babalu, okay? Than <laughs> 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 do the Ricky Ricardo voice that's been the bane of my existence since I was a kid. Yep. I, I, will say, I will say that the episode that ended with, with with uh, with Ricky playing Babalu by smacking smacking Lucy's backside, that was maybe a little over the top sexist. Some people just have a very particular kink, mm. and you know, there you, go. <laughs> you know, without I Love Lucy, there would be no Nessie without Harris I Love Lucy. Junior, we never would have had Auto be Man. No Auto Man. There would be no Nessie Harris Junior. <laughs> rule rule thirty four. There's there's a, you have to accept them for who they are. There's there's some Ricky Ricardo Fred Mertz slash fic out there somewhere that I'm not willing to go out and find. But the, I know it's the, there. the dynamic. The dynamic that you point to. The thing that I like about it is that is that everybody is kind of incompetent and. Everybody only achieves uh, balance through harmony and accepting we all have to work together. Nobody is dominant and and really superior to anybody uh, that, in terms of the way that, that the plots of these shows ended up playing out. I don't know. R- Ricky, Ricky was really good at what he did. He was a really good band leader. I, I think he was really good. And he, he wore the hell out of those suits. That was boy. 
I'm sorry, I looked at I the just, chat. I just want to point out that Monty and I simultaneously were making, uh, it, if it weren't for I Love Lucy, there would be no Auto Man because of Desi Arnaz Jr. <laughs> jokes. <laughs> it, it was a beautiful that one. is also important. Wow. Well, it actually is because uh, the pregnancy wasn't a huge deal at the time. Yes, that's true. Mm-hmm. Little Ricky, that's something. Mm-hmm. Also, Auto Man was awesome. Yeah, they invented the rerun as well because of the pre- because of the fact that she was pregnant. They reran shows, and CBS was like, Psh, "That's never gonna, that's never gonna keep going." Ah, <laughs> totally. And let's also acknowledge her as a, as a, as a businesswoman. Well, like absolutely. She was, mm-hmm. it, it was it was a great, it was an effective creative and business partnership as a husband and wife. But when they split and she was running the studio, she was running the studio, and she was doing. It, it, she was a really great example for a lot of people. She laid the groundwork for Julie Corman, Gail Ann Hurd female producers who really didn't just revolutionize TV and film and entertainment for women, but just in general, they are, they are women who, uh, who got stuff done plain and simple. And as David mentioned earlier, literally Star Trek and Mission Impossible were Desilu shows. And if you read the histories of those shows, (laughs) they in many ways only survived for as long as they did. And eventually they sold the studio to Paramount. But, uh, but Desilu, like they, Lucille Ball believed in those shows and it, it actually just liked them kind of bankrupted her in, in for a while there. (laughs) Uh, but just huge, huge credit for supporting that, that, uh, that material at, at Desilu. Well, and at the same time, uh, also producing Mannix, which was created by Levinson and Link, who the financial security of Mannix being on for eight oh, years allowed them to go off and create Columbo. Columbo. Okay. <laughs> I, was, I was about to say, oh, no, we're going to go on a Mannix. It's all connected. This is fascinating stuff. Which brings this- us to Andy Anotko, again, who cannot pick Columbo a second time. However, I will point out Mannix is available. So <laughs> the, the ABC version of Columbo. Yeah. And Can you pick the mystery movie? Because that includes Columbo. If I'm going to go back to that, well, I'm going to Macmillan wife only for yes. plaid, pl- plaid coats with plaid pants on men. I don't think that that I think that deserves to be in the Hall of Fame, if only so that we get those plush dolls in the gift shop of the Macmillan and wife like teddy bear sets. I think that'll be a really good seller. It's a good price point. Uh, but actually, I, I did decide I I did decide to go different because my first pick was a 70s drama. I wanted to go more modern comedy, and immediately I leapt to this one on my list, Parks and Recreation. I think that as uh, it's yeah. aging extremely well, it's a, it's the it's you start off with the fact that it is simply a hysterically funny sitcom. You you don't get anywhere by saying I, I, I'm not a fan of these shows that are have these like eight episode seasons every other year on a cable channel you haven't heard of, and people know they're funny because of essays on the web said this was very funny. I, I I I as soon as I ended this show this episode I had to blog about how whimsical and wry I thought the humor was. This was simply a flat out funny sitcom that was perfectly happy in being absolutely silly, but. I really respect the level of craftsmanship in this show because if you were to watch these characters in season two, I'm, I've, I've never seen season one because I've told I came up, I came onto it only like very very close to the end. I was Skip told it. don't go bother oh, exactly, so I've never seen it. it. But if you but if you were to start at the really at the moral start of this show, season two, these characters have been on a journey that that 
made them completely different at the end of the series while still being the same people. It's not as though they were reinvented as, well, we can't have we can't have Loretta Switch still be a bad person at the end of MASH, so we're going to sort of soften the character. It's no, they're older. They have learned from all the craziness that they have inflicted upon themselves. There is something good inside, good and valuable inside them. The people that had nothing good or nothing valuable inside them became even better comic relief as minor characters. Um, but you really you get invested in them. They ne- and they also never. Uh, sometimes it's unusual for a sitcom that they never decided to. The producers never decided to say, "Let's just we're, we're bored. We really can't be bothered. Let's just turn it into they're in the office and they just keep lobbing insults at each other, and they will still be friends even though they do nothing but lob insults at each other all day long." No, you really not only do they have a have a fundamental like of each other, and in some cases a love of each other. You understand throughout the course of the series what. What it is about each of these people that why this person really is attracted to this other person and why they really value them. Um, and it's also there's the really point by point craftsmanship and how it goes. I, I this is there's a line from uh, some mid I think it was maybe season five since season season six when they're planning the when they're playing the Harvest Festival or something. Um, that I think of once a month or once every couple months because it was just so nicely done. There was a, there. There's going to be you can see like in the in the outline of this episode. There's a scene that, ha- that has to take place inside uh, the chief of police office because there, uh, there's something that's going to happen. They have to move the plot forward to have the scene. And but they choose to have this one line in which uh, a character is a character has been sent there to say, "Oh, well, Leslie would like wants to know if, if you can uh, arrange to have uh, p- protection for uh, uh, security detail for this, this, this." And the chief of police says in one line, "Leslie, oh, Leslie, nope, always gets. Uh, we always give Leslie what she wants. Whenever she asks for a favor, it's never for herself." And then they get into what the reason why they have to have that scene there and they have to have a conversation. But it's like. They in one line they explained here is what Leslie Nope is all about. She really cares about her community. She wants to do good, and there are people in her community that uh, over the course of years have come to understand and trust her. That this is this is what the payoff of her just being a really hardworking and sincere public servant is. That we 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 always give we always give Leslie what Leslie she asks for. She never asks for a favor unless it's for somebody else. Uh, and so when you get to the end of the series. Uh, even though the, the town has put her through hell in so many ways, you know that she's now mature enough as a as a public official to know that okay, I can I have great ambition for what I'd like to do as a public servant. I cannot get this done as a city councilman, but a council person. But whereas in season two or season three, the biggest dream I could conceive of would be to be a, a city council person in Pawnee, Indiana, the town that I grew up in. Now I know that I'm capable of so much bigger things uh, that. My imagination is way beyond my the, the closest hill, and there are people around me that will help me get there, uh, and that I will want to help in many ways. And it's also one of the one of the nicest, one of the most pleasantly satisfying final episodes uh, of a sitcom I've ever seen. Yeah. Where you, mm, it's, yes. it's, it's, it's where mm-hmm. they ha- they had to make sure they put every. We, we all know what happens to each one of them, but it wasn't such a thing where. It seemed manufactured. It seems as though this is naturally where Nick, where Ron Swanson would wind up, even though you would never imagine that Ron Swanson from season two or season three would take a job with the federal government. But of <laughs> course, this is the, as Leslie Nope says that, look, this is you're, you'd be ridiculous to turn this down. Here's a brand new state park that you would be in charge of. Beautiful land, beautiful lakes, beautiful waters. And your your job would be protecting it. And this would be your office. Don't be stupid. Just say 
yes. And by the way, I already forged your name on the acceptance letter. You start tomorrow. Again, I got the shot clock on this because so many little moments that I love about this. I, I rewatched it again just two or three months ago, falling into that trap of, oh, I just I just want to see the little Sebastian episode again. And then, no, I'm not going yeah, to see the rest Sebastian. of that season. And then what came before it and after it. Uh, and the way they would build these arcs where the, 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 the arc is that there's going to be a harvest festival that they have to somehow get together despite a million people that don't want this to happen or are not excited about it they would build that tension and still make it a funny show scene for scene for scene i can't think of another sitcom that has achieved that same thing again not only being really smart not only being really well made but you don't blog about how witty and wry it was you laugh your butt off during the episode uh, and you just want to watch it again Andy Unako, that was literally the best <laughs> crystallization of that show that I could have ever Thanks, conceived Chris. in the history of man. That show was on my list, too, and there are a couple of standout moments that I particularly think of when I think of that show. I think, you know, in, in sort of boiling the characters down to their essence, there's the episode where um, Leslie basically keeps threatening to throw Ron a surprise birthday party. <laughs> and in the end, it turns out to just be him in a room alone with a steak and a, and a glass of whiskey. And it's like, that is so, I, you know, because the whole time he's protesting, I don't want this. I don't like, I don't want a big party. I yep. don't want to be surprised. And and the fact that she knows exactly what her friend wants and yeah. is still going to somehow surprise him with it, even though she, you know, the misdirect on the, it's beautiful. It's a wonderful moment. Another one of those perfect lines where to, to camera, Swanson <laughs> Tronson says, by far, her, by far Leslie's most annoying tendency is to do incredibly thoughtful things. <laughs> <laughs> Have you read the I mean, tie-in book? It's really good. No. <laughs> yes. Yes. Wow. Okay. Written written by Nate DeMeo of the Memory Palace. Hmm, finally, was, a TV show I can uh, read. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, the other two episodes that stand out for me are one, the one where April and Andy get married, which yes. is yeah. the textbook setup of like a, oh my God, this is awful. These people are about to ruin their lives that somehow manages to turn you around in the course of 22 minutes into <laughs> these two people are perfect for exactly. each other. Exactly. And exactly. then bear yeah. that out for the rest of the show, which is incredible and andy dwyer starts off as this real loser oh he fell into a pit fell into a pit and he broke his legs and now he's going to be the sponge off other people but soon enough we realize no he's just this adorable sweethearted but kind of doofy guy that you just can't help but love <laughs> and, and chris pratt chris pratt seems oversaturated these days i think a lot of people have gotten you know tired of his shtick but like th there's no argument that he's not an amazing comic performer from oh, that show yeah. burt macklin yeah fbi yeah. <laughs> i mean i mean talk about the simpsons and and the world of springfield i i plausibly live at least near pawnee indiana and they nail indiana <laughs> pawnee indiana has a similarly yeah. large and wonderful cast yeah. of characters. I just, you know, I, I've watched the show I don't know how many times already. Uh, and again, the boys love it because, hey, this is something they recognize and it's just silly. I mean, they, they just watched the clip of Ron Swanson getting the, the Employee of the Year award and in the middle of handing it to him and he grabs it and he runs off and he jumps in the car and he drives across the street. He, he burns it and then he drives across the straight line and buries the ashes. And they love that scene. I, 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 think, I think for for the creation of an absolutely believable but completely insane town, there's part, there's Pawnee, Indiana, and then there's Reno, Nevada from Reno 911. There's two perfectly done uh, corrections. And I mean, I love Mike Schur. I mean, 
just think think about the batting average going from working on the office to co-creating Parks and Rec to co-creating Brooklyn Nine Nine and doing The Good Place. Yep. That is a, a hell of a lineup of shows. <laughs> indeed, indeed. My God. And uh, as we pointed out in our episode about The Good Place, that people should check out too. I just want to say that it amazes me that the creator of Fire Joe Morgan is also the creator <laughs> of Parks and Rec, which is such a nice show and wants everybody to be happy. <laughs> I didn't know he had that in him. I love that he and Amy Poehler get together every year because she wants him to tell her what Leslie Nope is doing this year. <laughs> <laughs> they do that every summer, apparently. All right. We're going to move on. Moises, it's your turn. This is number 18 of 20 picks in the this two-round draft. <laughs> sneaking, sneaking ever forward. Moises, what's oh. your choice? We made it all the way this way, and what I hoped would still be on the table is, in fact, still on the table. Now, you could say that I stayed in the realm of children's television, but this particular uh, children's television show crosses the age barriers and is there for anybody uh, who sometimes, uh, when an injustice is committed, says, I am vengeance. I am the knight. I am <laughs> Darkwing Batman. Duck. Oh. No, that's the terror that really flaps in the Dark night. Come on, yeah. man. You know that Darkwing Duck is the terror that flaps in the night. Yeah, that's uh, true. Batman the Animated Series not only kicked off uh, a bunch of uh, license holders realizing they had gold mines that they could turn into kids' cartoon shows that tons <laughs> of people would tune into, but it really, it, for me, is the peak. You had fully orchestrated music. Uh, a, a real score for a children's animated television show. You had a seriousness of the craft from people behind the scenes who really loved and really knew this stuff and really wanted it to be done well. Coming on the heels of the 1989 Batman movie, yes, they used the same main theme. Yes, there was a similar Art Deco aesthetic to things. There were other things that they had in common. But the ways that they went way off of that map are what makes the show so absolutely fantastic. They defined an aesthetic of their own that is still to this day something that they're making new versions of action figures and collectibles and art and uh, limited run vinyl pressings of the score. And the main cast is electric and incendiary and fantastic and helped pioneer the way that these shows were cast and the way that they were recorded and the way that many of them, the best of them, were directed uh, by people like Andrea Romano, who voice directed this show. But for me, the, the, the thing, the thing that, that really, really seals it is that when they were out of steam, they were done. There isn't a big decline in this show. There are episodes that are not as good as others, but there is really not a terrible episode in the entirety of the run of Batman the Animated Series. And for me, that includes what they called the new Batman and Robin adventures, which was really just season three of the show and a title change so that they could strike a new syndication deal or something. Um, it, it really, it really defined the way that DC animation went from there. You know, we had a Superman animated series, we had a justice league animated series, and they have continued to crank out a bunch of animated stuff. And it, 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 it made the notion of Western animation, not just being for kids, a whole thing. And it became the standard that in the superhero genre, if you consider superheroes a genre, this was this was the example everything was held to. Live action, television, everything. If it was playing with superheroes, it was going to be compared to Batman the Animated Series, often with a refrain of, why can't they just let people like the people who did Batman the Animated Series do this? 
Why don't they just give it to people who know the material, love the material, respect the material, and don't talk down to their audience? Yep. Paul Dini, exactly who yep. you want in the, in the director's chair. Definitive Batman, Kevin Conroy, hands down. Absolutely. No I, arguments. I agree with everything you said, Moises. In, uh, it was, I remember uh, when it first came on, watching it and just thinking, it's, I love a TV show where you watch and you think, how did this get made? How did something so quiet and marvelous and perfect and respectful of the audience, respectful of material, interesting, fun, and deep, how did it get made? Because you feel like TV even when it's not a wasteland, that it's difficult to get something that's sophisticated in an animated form, even better, something that was allegedly for kids, and it persists and has that still has that integrity to this day. Thank yeah. you. I think, I think one of the most powerful things you can say about it is that it created a character, Harley Quinn, that was so perfectly suited to the Batman world that you, 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 you'd be forgiven for, for, for not realizing that she was not created in 1947. She was just, she was a modern re, re, invention for a cartoon show that that just nope she's she is now part of every she's now part of that entire tapestry and ain't nobody pulling her out there were there were classic hollywood actors in this show that kids watching the show got to know these people's voices and then mark a movie hamill. would come on you mark know hamill. amc or something oh well, yeah i'm, uh, I'm yeah. mark hamill but i mean sure, but like you got you got it yeah you had you had uh, you know guys who were on f troop playing uh playing you know police officers you had uh, paul williams playing the penguin um, you know, the, the, the stunt casting in these guest roles, whether they were villains, whether they were one-offs, you know, from, from Hamill and Conroy and the, and the big players in the show on down, the, the stunt casting of, of classic Hollywood actors just going down the list of, oh man. I really love this guy, and we're just going to put him in the show. And Ephraim Zimbalist as Alfred. Ephraim Zimbalist as as Alfred. Uh, uh, you know that 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 that's the other part of it to me is that it was like there were all of these Easter eggs planted by oh this guy would be amazing. He's not really yeah, doing any on camera right, stuff. Right. He still lives in L.A. Let's go. Let's bring him into the booth. He's ninety six. Great. He can record. Go for yep. it. And, and and it wasn't and none of them were stunts either. It wasn't like oh, isn't it adorable? Now he's he's gonna be, he's a magician in real life, so he's playing a magician. Like no, it's like Mark, Mark Hamill is the Joker. I'm like oh okay, they got the it's Luke Skywalker. It's like no, I would have if 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 there were a hundred demo tapes on my desk to cast the Joker. It would be, I don't know who this person is. I don't know how much money he or she wants, but oh my God, <laughs> sign him for 10 years if I, he wants I remember it. finding out that was Mark Hamill yes. and being yes. like, what? Yes, yes. yes. It was a mind blower. <laughs> and, and the part was originally cast with Tim Curry. And Mark yeah. Hamill re-recorded, I think, the first couple or three that had been animated to Tim Curry's voice doing his performance of the role. And it really says something when... When you have the confidence in your production to say that an actor of the caliber of Tim Curry, you know what? He is great. He's insanely talented, but he's not the right fit for this. We need someone else. They had to save him for King Chicken as on Duckman. <laughs> so I, I recommend to people they check out if they haven't our entire episode about Batman the Animated Series that we did, episode 296, as well as more than a dozen episodes of the TV podcast that Tony Sindelar has done this summer and last about Batman the Animated Series and related shows called Batman University. All right, uh, moving on. Two more picks to go. Uh, somebody wake up Glenn. Glenn's kids, wake up Glenn. I'm awake. Is, is there ventilation in that print shop where they store all those inks? <laughs> I always want to ask. <laughs> It's uh, David Lore next. David. So Batman was on my long list. Parks and Recreation was on my long list. 
Uh, so, so I get to pick something else that I, that I don't have to save anymore. See? This is wonderful. Dan brought up The Wire, uh, which is one of my favorite Baltimore crime dramas. Uh, I'm picking my other favorite <laughs> Baltimore crime drama, Homicide Life on the Street. Yes. It's, and part of the, part of the reason I love it and, and The Wire both, I love them for different reasons. The reason I love The Wire is that it is very realistic. It is intentionally trying to be as realistic as possible. Homicide is realistic, but it allows for more variation in storytelling. It's a little bit more theatrical at times, and it focuses on the characters. It's not really about solving crimes the way, you know, Columbo even is, uh, even though they do. I mean, it is about detective work, but it's about how the, the crimes they deal with and the people they deal with affect the detectives themselves. And over the course of eight seasons, which I mean, it's miraculous it stayed on that long, but it was inexpensive to film. It was on Friday nights at 10 o'clock. NBC wasn't losing money on it, so they kept making it. <laughs> and uh, and you had Andre Brower for almost the entire run of the show, uh, just, you know, giving a master class in acting. Uh, for a while, it was just like, oh, just put put Andre Brower in the box with a suspect and you've got a great episode. And then, then he wanted more of a challenge. So they give his character a stroke and then he has to come back from a stroke. And here's this, this character who has been a masterful interrogator who has to learn how to speak. And it was just astounding, but, but a whole, again, a, a whole world of characters around this. Um, very interesting filming techniques and and they had a lot of documentary filmmakers actually directing episodes because you never knew when you were going to be on camera so you had to be in character the whole time there is no back wall it's it's all you know a 360 degree set right um you had you had just some wonderful actors who went on to do other things and went on to direct things uh and then uh you had a a, a good final episode and then they wrapped it up with a movie the year later which is fine, fine. it's it's really another lie skip. bayless another lie <laughs> <laughs> you could pretty much skip all but the last 15 minutes of the homicide movie that's the only thing worth seeing and it is literally a scene between andre brower and kyle secor as his former partner that wraps yeah. up don't forget the story from the final episode. Don't forget episode. playing cards with John Polito. Rest in peace, John Polito. Eh. But uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the um, and they're just the connection there. By the way, is that David Simon wrote the book "Homicide: Life on the Killing Streets," which is a wonderful bit of uh, journalism in book form. Yes, and then he went yes. on to write "The Corner," which became an HBO miniseries, and then he uh, went on to make "The Wire." So uh, that's the common thread about these Baltimore crime dramas here but this is the barry levinson yeah. mm. run tom fontana uh was the showrunner and uh i love that show that's a great show there's also munch also munch that's where detective munch <laughs> who you might know from various law and order well. shows that's where he got his start it's yeah from the broader munch connected the munch universe, universe. yeah because he's also in the x-files it's true he's in the x-files arrested he's development the longest the running Simpsons. character on the television beat? as far as i can tell is john munch john munch is proving tommy westfall is real and you need yeah. to all accept <laughs> yep. him and you know what alfrey woodard's character from saint elsewhere appeared on homicide it's true 
As did the Law and Order characters, as did Mandy Patinkin from Chicago uh-huh. Hope as his Chicago Hope character, and all of them are it's, in Tommy Westfall's it's head. It's all connected. It's all connected. And it's all Tom Fontana's fault. Every now and then when I watch <laughs> Brooklyn Nine-Nine and I marvel at how funny Andre Brower is, I am reminded of how amazing he is in Homicide Life in the Street, and I think, what a range this oh. fellow has. This, it's <laughs> well, amazing. But, but, you know, when it was originally on the air, and I said... This is one of the funniest shows on TV, even then. And he is hilarious in it when he wants to be. When he wants to be. It's very understated. And, you know, you have to sit through a lot of seriousness, but man alive the the three men in Adina episode is one that I have taught in classes. Mm -hmm. It's like, this is, this is something to watch as a writer, as an actor, as a director. It is stunning. Absolutely. Put him in the box. Put him in the box. Put it in the box. Uh, All right. Glenn. You get to wrap us up. What's going on? Where am I? Don't look at me. Don't look at me. Oh, jeez. It's going to be okay, Grandpa. We're here. We're here for you. I thought this was a nightmare. (laughs) Uh, Well, (laughs) so uh, I have so many things on my list still. I know. uh, Berlin Alexanderplatz. Such a Read uh, all of them. Not. (laughs) (laughs) No. No, I shan't. I need to save them for future things. Um, But I'm going to take a a different extreme and... um, and I think this is justified because I was thinking about oh, other shows of the last. Wow, that few was years. an interesting choice. Justified, I like it. That's a good, good show. Uh, That's not crazy. Uh, Say other words that are shows, Glenn. <laughs> I'm thinking Dick Van Dyken. Oh, weeds from I enjoy, in the car. I enjoy to listen to news radio. Hmm. My, mo- my mother, the car. Well, my favorite Martian told me that uh, I needed to pick <laughs> oh, a show. Oh, Mork and Mindy. I was looking for something in recent seasons. I was thinking, so anything that's become um, embedded in my mind where I'm going to watch the show for years to come, and I don't care what happens next. And, you know, Westworld Revival, I thought that was um, – I, I thought it was – Profound and interesting and moving. I've watched most episodes twice, but I didn't, I don't know yet how it's going to work out. I can't pick it. I don't know if it will stand the test of time. But I am going to pick a recent show, one we've talked about elsewhere. I'm actually going to pick The Good Place. Oh. Because, and I know it's another show uh. by the fellow who did Parks and Rec. Um, but I think it's one of the most remarkable pieces of television I've ever seen in my life. It's another one of those shows that I, uh, feel again, almost, uh, baffled that it could have been made and aired in such a form on broadcast television. Uh, I've watched every episode at least three times, some five times. I think it's an incredible meditation on morality. It has terrific performances and it has an arc you rarely see as beautifully accomplished, even though it's only 13 episodes episodes in the first season. It's got great spoilers. It builds from things to, from episode to episode. When you go back and watch the entire series, uh, you find things not just because you know some of the reveals, but um, it's got a very intricate structure that doesn't seem intricate when you watch it the first time and uh, unravels beautifully on subsequent watching. So uh, it's not a perfect show. It's not my favorite show ever, but I think it's um, a little masterpiece, and I don't actually care what they managed to do in subsequent seasons. I think this season stands as an incredible piece of television making, and it's the kind of thing that I think will be talked about and things will be compared against. Mr. Chairman, the the representative from Texas would like to second the motion of the man from the Northern Lands on the basis of after one season, this show is like entering its third season. It's covered that much ground in such a small number of episodes. There is so much. It it, it is. This show really is my everything. And and I would have trouble justifying this 
for so many other shows that are that are similar length into their run. I yeah, I'm totally with you. You have my axe, sword, pick an implement of war. I'm with you. It, the fact that like minutes into the show, they're like, okay, it's sort of like the afterlife. Here's how it works. Now we're done with that and let's move on. We'll introduce more details as we need to. Like, oh, most shows would spend three episodes wallowing in the backstory and the framing mechanism. And nope, we just move yeah, on. Yeah. I, um, it's a, as a one, as a one season series, uh, you know, you never know where it's going to go, but, um, I will say that that first season is on the list of perfect first seasons with yes, something like go. Freaks yes. and Geeks, maybe something like that. Yeah, it's the yeah, same kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, yeah. That's right. It, it is so good that for them to screw it up enough in the second season for it to be a gigantic travesty would would only further justify its inclusion as a legendary <laughs> rise and fall of a would have been it's amazing imagine, yeah. and you're right freaks and geeks i was thinking about that and particularly even my name is is earl i really liked the first season of that but i felt it fell apart so much that they didn't live up to the promise the first season wasn't perfect it was clever but not perfect yep. this is yep. just kind of like this perfection of a show and if they retcon me to dislike this in a subsequent season, I will be sure. We'll shocked. just edit this episode. <laughs> Thank you. Everybody remembers the Titanic. Nobody remembers the Britannic. <laughs> yep. There are so many times in The Good Place where a normal sitcom character would do X. Like, yes. oh, I think I have a crush on this person. And you figure, okay, so they're going to spend three episodes sneaking around. And instead, they go to that person and say, hi, I think I might be in love with you. Can we talk about this? <laughs> and they resolve things, and it's that doesn't happen on television. Yeah. Monty, what I think my favorite moment of the show, possibly besides some of the reveals, is that bit where Eleanor and Tahani are talking, and they start fighting, and Eleanor says, "You know what? We're not going to do this. We're friends. Let's go." And you're like, "What? Yeah. What?" And it's perfect. It's it's in yep. character. We don't get to that icky, squeaky moment. We're like, "Oh, now we're doing the sitcom thing." As Roger Ebert famously said, that to find the idiot plot, meaning the the plot that would be resolved in exactly twelve yes. seconds, if not for the fact that everybody involved in the story is a total idiot, and yeah. that, that that and really, I, I really, I have to say, it's one of the most effective. A series enders i have it's the it's series ender excuse me a season ender that got me so excited about the next season because yes. you're, you're, you're sort of you're sort of used to a certain level of well of course it's tv and there's so many different competing things they have to do so if some things don't make sense okay i i i, I and i'm sure they're not going to fix this or i'm sure this is just something they really couldn't really put a put a fine detail on but then when you find out that no there was reasons why you thought certain things things were weird it's like oh well well played <laughs> governor well andy, played. can i point out one thing here andy too is that that point you make it's it's the people if they weren't idiots or you know most sitcoms the people are sort of bad i mean seinfeld's finale was kind right. of uh i mean a Terrible. lot of different opinions about it but it was killed, also killed that show for me yeah well but it was also there was a thing about it which was they actually acknowledged the fact that all these people were sort of terrible like frazier like most sitcoms are full of terrible people who lie all the time the fact that you start with the premise of a show being these are terrible <laughs> they're terrible people and they go to the bad place and we're going to back away from that terribleness and they're going to get better and further away from sitcom plots the further along the season goes is beautiful i i would i would disagree with fraser but i would i would also say for future Boy, consideration I, for future for future consideration we should do a show about 
awful the, the, the sort of final episodes that ruined the entire season or oh, the entire yeah. series for I you think it would yeah. be great that, that, that switched you yep. switched you from that, being a yep. fan to right. i can't watch this show ever yep. again great, yeah. great yeah. beginnings and great endings yeah great idea all right um we are going to wrap it up here we have inducted 20 shows into the TV Hall of Fame. Will there be more? Of course. We'll come back and revisit this at some other time uh, and induct even more shows. But for now, we, will? we have... Yeah, you don't have to have You got your two? Some you of can, us. You well, yes, Billy. It's optional. Podcasting is not mandatory. Are those the only two good shows, Erica? Well, there's Caillou. You didn't even like well, one of them. There's Supernatural. Yeah. We keep mentioning Caillou, and I picked a show I didn't like. I just think I wasn't cut out for no, this. That's good. You can retire. You got Doctor Who in. You've really done your job. That's true. All right. Let mm-hmm. me thank. Let me thank all my panelists for being here and tell you what what shows they picked. Glenn Fleischman, you chose Barney Miller and The Good Place. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. David J. Lore, you chose your show of shows and Homicide, Life on the Street. Thank you. <laughs> but I'm telling you, the season finale, the series finale of Hello, Larry ruined <laughs> it's the it. the loriest of all ruined sets it. of picks. Moises Chuyan, you <sighs> chose Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, Hello, Neighbor, and Batman, the animated series. Thank you for being here. <laughs> Hello, Neighbor. <laughs> Two great days. <laughs> Mr. McFeely, is that you? No, it's a it's your replacement. <laughs> oh, Mr. McFeely. Jason, Jason, thank you for being my neighbor. <laughs> oh, that's great. Andy Anatko, you chose Columbo and Parks and Recreation. Thank you. I'm so glad we've had this time together. Erica Ensign, you chose Doctor Who, of course. And I Love Lucy. <laughs> I chose Doctor Who. I Love Lucy, excellent historical choice. I would have gone with something that you mm-hmm. loved instead, but... <laughs> that's, that's not but my Erica style, has man. no heart. The curator thanks you for including I Love Lucy. Ah. Uh. John Syracuse, The Sopranos, and The Leftovers. HBO thanks Ooh. you. <laughs> <laughs> Don't stop believing, Jason. Dr. Drang, Late Night with David Letterman. Ooh, still kind of cranky about that one in the Mary Tyler Moore Show. Thank you for being here. Yeah, I stopped watching television in 1989. That's good. That's fine. Nothing much happened. <laughs> and let me explain that. to you and why he chooses detail. shows with people's names in them. Dan Morin, The Wire and Sports Night. Good picks. Good job, Dan. The Flyers played the Red Wings in a hockey game last night, and they won 4-3. to three. <laughs> Flyers are a bunch of goons. <laughs> I swear that was a very limited appeal joke. You're welcome. <laughs> you what have you got so them. far? Hey, I got that reference because you recently tweeted yep. about it. Reference acknowledgement. <laughs> this, is, this is true. Monty Ashley, thank you for being here. The Simpsons and Monty Python's Flying Circus. Two crazy out-of-the-box suggestions. Amazing. <laughs> Amazing. You didn't test me at all. I, I expect you to pick really weird things next time. Nobody picked Masters of the Universe. That's still on the board. Still on the board. Too bad Steve couldn't make it. <laughs> Oh, man. Maybe someone will next time. And I am your host, Jason Snell. And I picked Star Trek and Buffy the Vampire Slayer, which are two shows I love. And what a wonderful collection of 20 excellent TV shows in the incomparable TV Hall of Fame. We'll be back some other time to pick more shows. And we'll be back next week with another episode. Until then, thanks for listening. Goodbye, everybody. Goodbye.